All right, we are continuing our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage throughout church history. This is actually a re-recording of part eight because I had to skip over about 40 slides. So I thought about making this two. We'll see if that, how that goes. I may just make this one really long one. I didn't want to record this. Just one quick caveat that there is some stronger language here. So a little blur ears, you may not want to listen to this. I'm not going to be crass or define any of these words, but if you don't want your little one asking you what this or that word is, you may want not want them to listen to this stuff. And some of those words, I would use different words normally, but I'm quoting several sources. So that is how it turned out. Again, nothing crass, not going to be defining anything. You'll know what these things are. They're related to marriage and abuses of marriage and whatnot. All right, well, with that, let's look at what we have been going through. We have been looking at marriage, abortion, and marriage throughout church history, beginning with early Christianity. We said at that time period, they had the basics down. They're always looking back at Genesis. It was all pretty good. doesn't really get bad, kind of hit a downward turn until we hit uh, when Christianity is legalized in 325, and you have this Christianity in late antiquity. And I had said that not much really changed throughout marriage up until the time of the Reformation. One exception I should really add to that is what happened in the period of time from uh, 1075 to the 1300s. This was when the patristic teachings on marriage were first really fully systematized during the Papal Revolution. This was the era when the Catholic clergy, led by Pope Gregory VII, threw off their royal and civil rulers and established the Roman Catholic Church as not just, well, the Roman Catholic Church is already there, but established it as autonomous and an autonomous legal and political institution within Western Christendom. In this revolutionary context, the church developed a detailed systematic theology and canon law of marriage. And from the 20th century forward, the church's doctrine of marriage was categorized, systematized, and refined by notable works such as Hugh of St. Victor, Peter Lombard, and Thomas Aquinas. We have looked at some of their works. I was kind of showing the last several times how what pretty much started around the fourth century was carried on and just brought up further and further with men like this. So just wanted to bring that up because we will be dealing with Roman canon law a little bit later. So we have looked at the time period of 1517 and beyond, specifically you know, the more intimate lives of Luther and Calvin. Now we're spending some time looking at Calvin's Geneva. And last time I did give a lot of detail of the background of Geneva. I'm going to go into a little more of the history, give you some of the more political background. And I thought last time I gave so much so much detail and info on the history because I think this subject's really treated unfairly in a lot of histories and or pseudo-histories. So we're kind of just bringing up all the information bringing up the history, letting you decide for yourself whether it was good, bad, indifferent, whatnot. So, obviously not a perfect place. No place is the side of heaven. New heaven to new earth, but nonetheless, here we are. Anyways, I did want to bring up some of those really bad examples just to show you, when you look into the subject, you might run across stuff like this. This example came from Roland Blainton, and this is the Reformation of the 16th century. Now, he is... This is not like a Dave Hunt book where he blasts Geneva, things like that. Just 
out of ignorance, maybe I would say. He is a 42-year professor of ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical history at Yale, and so he's, he's a formidable figure. Tons of writing, respected scholar. Here's what he says of Calvin. He called him the arch-inquisitor of Protestantism, again, relating to his time in Geneva, the dictator of Geneva, and even saying if Calvin ever wrote anything in favor of religious liberty, it was a typographical error. And that is one of the more respected scholars, again. On the other side of the spectrum, kind of the, the worst scholars, you can have more like Dave Hunt's book is what I brought up. And again, I bring this up just to show you what you'll find. I actually formally went to churches where you know this book was sold and encouraged, and Dave Hunt came and spoke. I, I sat under him. I, I saw him, and he said stuff like this. So before I even get into this book, I'm not going to get into in detail. This is just what you'll find quoted on the back of the book and in the intro. They'll say things like, quote, John Calvin attempted to make the city of Geneva a model of the kingdom of God, and for his controlling effort, earned the title the Protestant Pope. Calvin's righteous judgment dominated the people of Geneva for eight deadly years. Of course, the death there is referring to is Urbeda, so we won't get into that detail, but you will run into this stuff when dealing with Calvin in Geneva. But starting about a decade before the Reformation begins, let's recall uh, what happened before the time of Calvin. In that decade preceding the arrival of Calvin, the city started getting its first Reformed preachers. However, on December 20th, 1528, the city council unequivocally confirmed its support for the Roman Catholic Church's jurisdiction over marriage, that Roman Catholic canon law. That's where we got a lot of our language, like, uh, do you take this man... Your wife, you take this wife to be, you know, lawfully wedded husband. You know, say something, forever hold your peace. The, the more formal types of marriage stuff we we read about and hear about, that came from Roman Catholic um, doctrine of marriage. There's nothing inherently evil about saying those things or, or whatnot. You know, there are some things they got right. You know, broken clock is right twice a day. Um, so, not trying to make it sound like if you've done that, you're a Romanist or anything like that. But just. The city of Geneva affirmed that, you know, there is support of Roman Catholicism and there's jurisdiction over marriage as of the end of 1528. However, um, well, actually, let me go back to what one of my favorite historians on Geneva and Calvin in Geneva, W.J. Greer, explains. In 1529, the Emperor Charles V addressed a strong warning to the citizens of Geneva, stating that he had heard that some preachers had proclaimed Luther's ideas among them that this was tolerated by them, he ordered them to seize these ministers and punish them severely. To seize these ministers and punish them severely. William Farrell was one of the, the, the ministers who visited during 1532 and 1533. He had to flee, but one of his pupils, Peter Verretz, replaced him. Apparently there was also a time where an attempt on Verretz's life was made and... Um, I guess I did and they attempted to poison them, and that happened. We talked about that a little bit last time. Anyways, Farrell returned a little later and drew up a liturgy in 1533 and a catechism, a summary of the faith in 1534. And he's one of the main primary reformers before the time of Calvin even steps foot into the city. As more and more were sympathizing with the reformers, Farrell pressed for a public debate to make clear to every eye the weakness of the case of their opponents. 
This was held between May 30th and June 24th, 1535. Two Roman friars were the defenders of the Roman cause, but Pharaoh carried the day on all points. The five points he defended made clear that Reformed doctrine was preached in Geneva before Calvin came. About halfway between these debates, the Bishop of Geneva winds up fleeing. That happens on June 13th, 1535. And he charges that the citizens were, quote, listening to false preachers, renouncing the holy sacraments of Mother Church, and casting down the cross and images of Our Lady. So Romanism was already, already taking some fall in Geneva before the time Calvin even steps in. Main reason to bring up all these points. Continuing on, on August 10th, 1535, the city decreed that the celebration of Mass cease until further notice. This is huge because the Mass, as you know, Roman theology is the centerpiece. It's the main function of worship there. So for it to cease, that is a major strike in Romanism in that city. Most of the Roman clergy and monks fled the city by this point. But those who wished to stay could do so on condition of attending upon the preaching of the word of God. The true preaching of the word of God, I would add. One contributory cause to this victory was the low morale of the Roman clergy. Professor Foster says that, quote, On this point, there is substantial agreement between Catholic and Protestant historians. So even Roman historians admit, yeah, they, they lost this debate pretty bad and morale was really low. Anyways, you heard earlier that the city what it was like. We talked about that a lot last time. So the following was a pretty big deal that happened the next year on February of 1536. They, quote, forbade blasphemy, oaths, and card playing, and regulated the sale of intoxicants. On May 21, 1536, urged on by Farrell, the town called a meeting uh, in the, the, the whole General Assembly, and they all, without one dissent, decided to live by the word of God and abandon idolatry and to live for the holy evangelical law. So not just a negative, but also a positive as well. Only a decade before this time had the city confirmed its support for the Roman Catholic Church's jurisdiction over Mary. Remember, that was in December 20th, 1528. They also agreed to maintain a school to which all would be obliged to send their children and where the children of the poor would be taught free of charge. Again, sermon attendance was also required under penalty of a fine. So things like this, a lot of people will come in and say Calvin was a tyrant for doing things like that. That was already in place before Calvin even came in. Disciplinary laws were already there, enacted by the officials, and even voted on by the people of Geneva. So the city wanted this. All right. So it was months later after this, August 1536, that Calvin actually arrives. During the latter part of Calvin's life, he bore similar testimony to the city, saying, quote, When I first came to this church, there was practically nothing. There was preaching, and that is all. All was in confusion. A lot of what Calvin did was really organize a lot of the, church, the liturgy, the church's doctrine, uh, with, his, with his systematic, with his uh, institutes of the Christian religion, and also give some good guidance to the government as well on how to organize and continue to work together. Calvin's attack on the prevailing Romanist theology of marriage was nothing new, and it was rooted in the Lutheran reformers before him and what they had already established, the theory of the two kingdoms. Calvin has an institute's version, uh, in his institutes 
from the version of that same year that he came, 1536, says this. And I will I will give the caveat that um, modern day two kingdom theology. I, I'm not going to say that Calvin was that to the essence. You know, it has evolved and changed over the centuries. But in essence, in the bare basics of it, there was a two kingdom theology that the Lutherans had proclaimed and Calvin followed. Again, if Calvin would have said this, you know, a couple of years, you know, a decade before this, it would have been radical. By this point, the doctrine was already flowing, and people were understanding it as more and more Reformation was flowing through the city. Anyways, Calvin says the following: There is a twofold government in man. One aspect is spiritual, whereby the conscience is instructed in piety and in reverence in God. The second is political whereby man is educated for the duties of humanity and civil life that must be maintained among men. These are usually called the spiritual and temporal kingdoms, two kingdoms. Again, and he says these are not in proper terms, by which is meant that the former sort of regime pertains to the life of the soul, while the latter, temporal kingdom, has to do with the concerns of the present life. Not only with food and clothing, but with laying down laws whereby a man may live his life among other men honorably and temporally. For the spiritual kingdom resides in the mind within, while the temporal kingdom regulates only outward behavior. So this being the case, uh, what happens after Calvin arrives? Well, in January of 19. Sorry, in January of 1537, William Farrell and John Calvin submit to the city and it is adopted a document titled Articles Concerning the Organization of the Church and the Worship of Geneva. Apologies for that. Um, it begins with the quote to kind of lay out what they were after, their main goal. They said, quote, Most honored lords, it is certain that a church cannot be called well-ordered and regulated unless in it the Holy Supper of our Lord is often celebrated and attended, and one of the true marks of the church, right? And this with such good discipline, another mark, that none dare to present himself at it save holily and with singular reverence. Third mark would be the true preaching, pure preaching of the gospel, which they already had in place. They go on, and for this reason, the discipline of excommunication, by which those who are unwilling to govern themselves lovingly and in obedience to the holy word of God may be corrected, it is necessary to maintain the church in its integrity. It very much sounded like Baptists wanting a pure church, right? Um, a little jab there, just kidding. So that is, you know, true church, preaching of the word, right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. This was a common theme, something very much proclaimed during the times of the Reformation. Once people are questioning, well, if we're saying the Roman Church is a harlot and has left, and they have the Antichrist, the Pope. Then what is a true church? What is the essence of it? So those three things. Right preaching of the word, right administration of the sacraments, baptism of the Lord's Supper, that is, and church discipline. Now, think about trying to implement this to a people who were described earlier as a mixed city. Uh, you have a third that was sympathetic towards the Roman Catholic religious ways. You had a third, again, these are just very broad kind of estimates. I wanted to get rid of the old tyrannical system that the Romanists brought in, but they really still wanted to live for their own purpose, have their own pleasures. So they, they liked the Protestantism that got rid of the Romanists, but they didn't really want the ethics of Protestantism. Uh, then some would go for whatever religion most lined up with their political views, initially being for the Reformation and whatnot. But some, you know, all the way wanted 
the whole shebang. So, very mixed city. Again, W.J. Greer describes the scene as this, quote, It's evident that behind these articles there was a tremendous concern for that which is holy. Three leading points should be noted. One, to enforce discipline, the ministers requested that there be appointed certain persons of good life and repute among all the faithful to keep an eye upon the life and conduct of the citizens. These were to report notable offenses to one of the ministers and join with him in fraternal admonition to the offender and as a last resort proceed to excommunication. Throughout the years, Calvin was explicit that the pastor had no right to bear the sword. That's why they say like, all they could do is admonish, encourage, uh, discipline. He understood that you know that was a, a civil duty, not a spiritual one. However, he was not even able to excommunicate for decades, and he worked for it really hard in Geneva. So again, he was no tyrant. He didn't just come in and lay down the law. He had to go through a process. There were higher ups. So. But this is something he wanted, ultimately. He continues, Greer continues, They urge in these articles that all the inhabitants make confession and give account of their faith. Three, they urge that measures be taken to train the young in religious truth. Yeah, they didn't want this to be just a flash in the pan. They, they knew, like, if we need to pass this on, if we want it to continue, we need to pass it on. We need to train up our young in the way of the Lord. It may be noted here that Calvin drew up a catechism to help in this manner. So Calvin put his money where his mouth was. He says, we need to train the young. So he went about writing catechism, providing for people. Now, before we get too far, let's give a quick overview of who was in charge in Geneva. And I like how George uh, Gatgunis summarizes it thusly. Quote, three elected bodies ruled the city-state of Geneva. The Council of 200 the Council of Sixty, and the Council of Twenty, sometimes called just the Small Council. The Council of Two Hundred was popularly elected, so again, they were elected from the people, no tyrants here, um, and from themselves, so from that Council of Two Hundred, so the whole city votes on the Two Hundred. Within that Two Hundred, they vote on a smaller group, that's the Council of Sixty. They all had various duties. They got more and more important the smaller it went. And lastly, from the Sixty, the small council, which possessed ex, um, executive power to punish um, impenitence. And the small council also sentenced people to fines, the stocks, imprisonment, banishment, or as a last resort, sometimes even capital punishment. The 200 would eventually take over the work of the 60 as the years went by, and eventually the, the council of 20, you know, that's that was their name, Sometimes they were just called the small council because sometimes there was five people that were voted directly from the city that would be a part of their, which again, is another, I think, great idea for government. So also keep in mind that during this time, there's about 13,000 people living in the city with new refugees moving in all the time, sometimes big influxes depending on persecution going on around them. So knowing more instruction was needed. November 1536, Calvin wrote a brief confession of faith, which was essentially a summary of the main teaching points from his institutes. Over the next year, Farrell and Calvin pressed to get the citizens express their assent to this, but the council was unresponsive. Recall that Geneva had various allegiances in the past. One of those cities wanted Geneva to align with them, including how their services were done. So like, if you're going to align with us, if we're going to protect you in a military way from some people who want to take you over, you need to line up with our services. 
So there's a there's a lot of drama, and sometimes they would they would do this kind of stuff. Sometimes their services may not have been purely Romanist, but some of it had had looks that were too Romanist for them. So over the years, the service in Geneva had become less and less Roman Catholic. For example, baptismal fonts were completely abandoned. Unleavened bread, similar to what the Romanists use, wasn't used anymore. Um, and all the special days with their special masses, you know, like Christmas, Easter, those types of things, were completely abandoned. On January 4th, 1538, the council forbade ministers from excluding anyone from communion. Again, they did not, the council, the city government, did not allow the church to practice excommunication, something the reformers heavily believed was proper for a church to be pure and right and according to God's word. Uh, and some months later, they adopted the ceremonies from one of the cities that they wanted to align with without even consulting the ministers. This was essentially a battle between who gets to say what goes on in the church, is where a lot of drama comes in in Geneva. The civil authorities, are they the ones in charge of the church, or the church ministers? You would think it's the church ministers, but this was some of the debate. This all comes to a head when the council orders the ministers to take the supper like that other city with unleavened bread. Though the ministers preferred leaven, really just to disassociate and show that they were different from the Romanists. I don't think there's anything wrong with either, but it's just the history here. Ultimately, after Calvin preaches, he comes down from the Lord's Supper and bars everyone from taking it by refusing to administer it altogether, saying that the people were not in the proper mood and therefore it would desecrate the sacrament, which was to be done with reverence. In his thinking, it's like, well, they were just wanting this for political reasons. This was all a show. This is not what we do with the Lord's Supper. So good on Calvin for saying, you guys are not in the proper attitude for the Lord's Supper. We're doing this for political reasons. This is not okay. So, in February 23rd, 1538, Calvin and Farrell are given three days to depart Geneva. In other words, if their ministers aren't going to do what they want, they're just going to find some new ministers. So what happens at this point is summed up pretty well from uh, Wilson Walker, his, and his co-writers in the history of the Christian church. He says, Weary of civil disorders, convinced of the ill estate of the church and of the insufficiency of the ministers. This is about a three-year period. I'm sorry, I think I went a little too far. Um, a lot more political and pastoral changes happened in Geneva, and seemingly for the worse. The city winds up becoming more chaotic, uh, more so than when Calvin first arrived in saying There was hardly anything. It wasn't very organized. But it only got worse when Calvin and Farrell left. So again, Walkerson summarizes it like this. The party in power at Geneva was, quote, weary of civil disorders, convinced of the ill estate of the church and of the insufficiency of the ministers. Uh, they, they asked Farrell to come back, and Calvin. Farrell outright says, nope. But Calvin says, reluctantly, yes, but ultimately still a yes. This is what he says, quote, I would rather submit to death a hundred times than go to that cross, referring to Geneva. But nonetheless, Calvin does go back to Geneva, resuming his work right where he left off on September 13, 1541. Three days after his arrival, he goes on to the little council, asking them to implement what him and Farrell tried to start and implement when they first came. After the various councils, the 260-20, make amendments to it, you know, without even asking the ministers, it eventually gets passed and enforced. That's really when we get to the time of Calvin's Geneva, 
when he comes back, 1541 through the next two decades, 1564 until the time of Calvin's death. And again, like I said, Calvin just picks up exactly where he left off, so much so that the, the chapter and verse that he had last preached in the Bible, when he's back three years later, he just picks up at the very next verse. He just continues on the work, puts his hand on the plow, and keeps pushing forward, not looking back. Love it. All right, so what exactly were these changes that Farrell and Calvin wanted to bring about eventually got brought about? First, according to Greer, these ordinances of 1541 remained the moral and legal code of the city for more than three centuries. I think last time I said decades, but it was three centuries. At the time, there was still no communication. Calvin had to keep fighting for that. It would eventually happen in 1561, just some years before he died. So at least you got to see that. There's also some updates regarding marriage. Gilbert explains that Geneva was divided into three parishes. Throughout the week, there were to be 17 sermons held, not only on Sunday, but on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday as well. And on Sunday at midday, children were to be catechized in all three churches in the very in the city. There's three different churches. And before Calvin death 20 years later, a daily sermon had been instituted in all three churches in the city, so it just grew and the word was more and more and more preached as time went on in that city. In the church, there were to be four classes of office holder. First, there was pastors, then there was teachers, elders, and deacons. The pastors were um, candidates for that position a pastor, they had to pass an examination with respect to both doctrine and moral character. They must have been chosen by another minister, presented for approval to the little council, that council of 20-ish, and finally submitted to the common consent of the company of the faithful. So the entire church had the final deciding vote on that. The work of the teachers was the second class of office holder, was the instruction of the faithful in true doctrine. In providing for this office, Calvin showed his concern for proper education. They were really became um, lecturers in Old Testament theology, New Testament theology. They had really the highest honor as far as teaching. Think of college professors, things like that. Eventually, Geneva would start some, some universities and colleges uh, for pastors, for missionaries to go out. And this is where teachers came in. But because it was only possible to profit from such lectures, if First one is instruction in the, in the languages and humanities. They also taught that, and that's some of the other stuff they brought up in colleges and what they prepared their children for, not only for the ministry, but also for work in the civil government. So again, they very much thinking of the two, two kingdoms there. It was many years, however, before an effective educational system was established in Geneva. Every three months, ministers would meet together to critique each other. This was a really cool, interesting part about what they did. And they would settle any contentions amongst their ranks. You know, again, a lot of rotating ministers. And so they would come together, encourage each other, talk about their sermon, just give sermon reviews, any issues, they would work it out. And weekly, these discussions were open to the public. They would also discuss scripture. And so this is a, a time you could be a, a regular citizen and listening in this elephant room, if you will, type symposium and that could be a great way to educate the people as well. It was an exegetical exercise that continued to sharpen them and keep their skills, like I said, sharp. As for their elders, 
their office is to have oversight of the life of everyone. So they were really the, I think more of the shepherds. They were watching over the people, not just in church, but throughout the city. There were to be 12 of them chosen from the members of the three councils, to, quote, to keep an eye on everybody. They were to form the consistory, which would be joined by the ministers and which was to meet weekly. This was the body that exercised disciplinary authority in the church. It had no power to impose any other penalties than purely ecclesiastical ones, the most severe being excommunication, which was to be invoked only after private admonition had failed. For temporal punishment, the consistory had to turn the case over to the councils. So anything more, you know, if, if um, a modern example might be some issue with, um, what do I want to say? Some issue that is a more civil issue, like a theft happened. Like you should be admonished, dealt with by the church. But if it was an issue of theft that needs to be reported to the civil authorities, you know, we would call the police, write up a police report, go about it that way. It was like that. The consistory only had certain power. Anything that needed to, you know, if they needed to be charged a fine or something like that, repay back, and they couldn't just work it out amongst themselves, they would call the city to do that. Again, the consistory doesn't have a lot of freedom until 1555, and they have their own power to excommunicate. The work of the deacons was to administer funds for the poor and the sick, and to look after the maintenance of the public hospitals, even. Provision was also made for medical care for the poor in their own homes. Begging was strictly forbidden in the city. A hospital recently established for travelers passing through the town was also maintained. There was a separate hospital for the plague as well. And apparently the deacons did such a good job that there was no need for anyone to beg in Geneva. I mean, it's also illegal, but there became no need to even do it, which which really shows that they, they began to run like a very smooth, well-oiled machine. So at this point, the authorities of Geneva looked like the following. Kind of see that Council of 200, Council of 60, the Council of 20, kind of side by side with the consistory. So again, you had the two kingdoms. They weren't separate, so don't think of like this harsh separation of church and state. They understand they have different duties. They worked alongside together. I mean, the consistory is what we're mostly going to be looking at. It was consisting of the elders and the ministers, and someone looking over it, about 24 of them. The Reformation in general, the reformers before Calvin, Calvin himself, spent time tearing down the structures built on the shifting sands of man's reasoning for more than a millennium. Though Calvin did say, quote, it is not perfect, but passable, considering the difficulties of the time. So they spent a lot of time tearing down the old institutions. Now they're really spending time building up what they believe God's word teaches how it should be done. So Calvin continued to work hard and to ensure the different spheres of authority, the church and the civil, that is, didn't encroach upon each other. He was really far from being a quote-unquote Protestant pope, as people will accuse him. Dr. Wang examines this common smear upon Calvin, saying, quote, The danger of religious domination should be acknowledged, of course. But one should take into consideration the mitigating historical circumstances of Calvin's Geneva. First, Genevan citizens were, at least by profession, followers of the same religion. The need to base public laws on Christian morality was not in dispute. 
as the civil order in Geneva was based on some form of covenant or social contract that entailed election and accountability of officials, the citizens of Geneva were active participants in the political processes in this small city-state. Indeed, the Genevans themselves were more aggressive than Calvin in implementing public regulations to ensure social cohesion and political unity. In reality, it was the civil authorities, the elected councils, and sometimes the consistory which exercised power in Geneva. Indeed, Calvin's ongoing challenge was to preserve social space for the church and protect it from encroachment by powerful and intrusive civil authorities so that church members could enjoy freedom to practice their faith. Remember that Calvin was in a position that he was appointed to. He could lose it. He had lost it before. Remember, they asked him to leave the city. Leave in three days. We're not going to follow what we're due. So, not a tyrant. Just making that point. All right. Now, since the city had abandoned the Romanist law on marriage, that Romanist Catholic, Roman Catholic canon law on marriage, Geneva wanted, quote, certain new ordinances on marriage to be put into place. Again, they'd gotten rid of old things, but like, what are we going to fill it with? That's the question. So on October 13th, 1545, the council commissioned Calvin to prepare a draft marriage ordinance. That way they could have, okay, well, what do we believe it should be? If we disagree with it as a sacrament and all these other things that are connected to Roman Catholicism, then we need a proper ordinance because we recognize this is still something that the city should have involvement with, so forth and so on. It was soon amended and widely circulated, even though it wasn't formally enacted until 1561, despite Calvin's repeated efforts to get it put in place. So that's kind of interesting because we have a lot of laws that would get put in place, but then they're never enforced. In this case, this is more like, um, yeah, it's, it's just a draft, but it gets enforced right away, even though it's not formally inactive until almost 20 years later. Anyways, it does provide us with a good summary of what they sought to positively enforce. So let's look at it briefly. And this comes from the Volume 1 of Sex, Marriage, and Family in John Calvin's Geneva, Courtship, Engagement, and Marriage by John Whitty Jr. and Robert and Kingdom. They summarize his marriage ordinance as follows. Quote, in Calvin's Geneva, marriage was expected of all fit parties who reached the age of consent. Only those rare parties who had received God's gift of continence could forego the gift of marriage. Again, the gift of singleness they believed was pretty rare. Mandatory celibacy for clergy was outlawed. Traditional prohibitions on remarriage of divorcees and widowers were removed. A strong pro-marriage ethic and culture was the new norm of Reformation Geneva. Before this time, you got to remember that there was about 25% of the population that were either monks or nuns or part of the clergy in some way and had taken a vow of celibacy. So to have 25% more of your population able to marry and have families, that's a big culture shift. That's one reason we say like the Reformation changed a lot just by going back to the truths of the Bible and seeking to live them out. They go on, quote, One key to a strong marriage, Calvin insisted, was picking the right mate. A person of ample piety, modesty, and virtue especially, of comparable social, economical, and educational status as well. A mate's physical beauty could play a part in the calculus of marriage, 
but spiritual beauty was the more salient issue. Another key to a strong marriage was taking the time to get to know one's mate before proceeding with engagement and marriage. Calvin had no patience with the tradition, with the traditional, with the tradition, excuse me, of arranged marriages, sight unseen, or with rushed secret marriages driven by lust. He insisted that parties take time to get to know each other before taking the fateful step into marriage. True marital love, he insisted repeatedly, requires previous acquaintance. So this consistory that Calvin created, again, those elders and pastors um, to help with the Protestant reforms in the city, how did their cases arise? It was also included council members of the 20. So this is very much a, a, a mixing of the two kingdoms and how they dealt with some of these issues. John Whitty explains how these cases arose. He wrote, quote, Cases came before the consistory in a variety of ways. Think of, think of the consistory as, as a small small court, small kind of local judge dealing with issues. Cases came before the consistory in a variety of ways. Sometimes they came on the initiative of an individual who sought relief. A jilted fiancé who wanted to have her engagement contract enforced or her dowry returned. A man who claimed his wife was cheating on him and wanted a divorce. A woman who limped into court with blackened eyes and broken teeth, asking for protection from her abusive husband. A child whose parents threatened to disinherit him unless he married a woman he did not want. Blackmail wife. A poor person who had felt unjustly banned from the local hospital and wanted a bed. A businessman who felt his partner had embezzled his funds. And nothing new under the sun is there. A renter whose landlord refused to fix the window. A variety of cases they took. Other cases began on the initiative of the lieutenant or other government official, a pastor or a concerned citizen. Sometimes they alerted the consistory to a serious need like poverty, sickness, unemployment, loneliness, or neglect that required pastoral intervention or material assistance. In all of these cases, the consistory served more as a grand jury and preliminary hearings court. The consistory had wide subpoena to summon and investigate parties, witnesses, and documents. In general, the consistory and the council agreed in, a trying, to, in trying to maintain a single style of domestic life for everyone in Geneva. Usually the style of a family group consisting of a husband and a wife, dependent children, and almost always young servants living together in harmony in a single household. Several alternative styles of life were actively discouraged, most obviously the lifestyle of celibacy. The consistory would summon a single man, usually one who had gotten into trouble for fornication, this is not being really um, acting like a, a single man should, and ask him why he wasn't married. They would also help the man or summon a matchmaker to find him an appropriate wife if he couldn't do it by himself. Another style of life that was repudiated was promiscuity of any sort, or a very wide variety. I cut out his explanation, but it just, it's not hard to think of. Turn on the news, you'll figure it out. Before the Reformation, promiscuity was regarded as inevitable, a necessary evil. 
Geneva, like most cities of the period, permitted and regulated prostitution as a way of controlling and channeling the charged libidos of its citizenry. Prostitution was regarded as a necessary service, especially for the visiting merchants who came to the large fairs twice a year for which the city had been famous in the 14th and 15th centuries. After the Reformation, prostitution was abolished. A few professional prostitutes were treated fairly gently, told to move on to another community, even offered small sums of money to cover their travel expenses. We can get a good sense of the volume of cases on sex, marriage, and family life, and family life, and of the patterns of litigation in the consistory by contrasting the full case records from three sample years of 1546, 1552, and 1557. Now, these three years are chosen for various reasons. So 1546 was the year that the new marriage ordinance was first available to the consistory and that they began to implement its provisions. 1552 was a year when the consistory and Calvin's leadership of the Reformation altogether were being actively challenged. There's a lot of uh, headbutting, we'll say. And Geneva was changing dramatically with an influx of French immigrants due to some more a lot of other political issues. And in 1557 was the year when Calvin and his allies were at the height of their power, so to speak, and they finally gained the power to excommunicate. The church finally got the power, the consistory specifically, who would look into these cases very deeply, um, had the power of excommunication. So three very different years in the life of Calvin's Geneva. So let's look at some of these. One thing that you will notice on these is as we progress through the years that the guilty party being banned from communicate from communion, uh, it's 182 cases related to our topic. There's only really used five times. This picture actually is a picture of the consistory. You would have a moderator like Calvin and then the various elders and people from the city, the, the council, working together to solve these cases. Anyways. The ban from communion was a far more serious punishment than it is now. This is something I just want to bring up before we look at it. People saw it as preventing them from receiving a sacrament that was a sign of God's grace. And formally, if you remember in Roman Catholic times, how they perceive um, the sacrament, the uh, Lord's Supper, communion, they believe that's ultimately receiving salvation. As one pope would say, it's pulling Christ and you re-sacrificing him. So it's, it's hugely important to be excommunicated from communion to these people. It was also a social humiliation that could interrupt normal social routines and business. Banned parties could not act as godparents, an important honor at the time. Nor could they get married even. Sometimes they were also excluded from poor relief and access to city hospitals. A very big deal to be excommunicated. So looking at the cases, just briefly, I'll leave this up for reference. You can pause and look in more detail yourself. Here we have the number of cases. It's about 94 on fornications the first year when the marriage ordinances is instituted. So notice how 29 of these, you know, about a third, is resolved just by admonition, taking time, talking to the brother, the sister, whoever. Um, ultimately, only four had to be banned from communion, and 47 of them ultimately make it their way to the council. So 
the admonition part of this works out rather well. It, it solves a lot of these cases. I mean, just like about half of the spouse and family quarrels were solved by the consistory for the head to get up to a higher court, if you will. They even dealt with issues of abortion. There's only one, but it was still an issue back then. Baptismal disputes, uh, child abuse, mistreatments was an issue they had to deal with. Schooling disputes, disobeying parents, one of them. Wife beating even had to be dealt with. And divorce, six of them. So total cases in 1547. Again, these are just related to sex, marriage, and family, kind of issues we're looking at. 309. The city does grow, so some of these numbers are, are going to be not perfect, but looking at that next year, 1552, when there's a lot of more infighting within the city, then we have about 94 issues of fornication, 22, so it's going down a little bit, 19 are banned, by, banned from communion, 55 removed to the council for further, you know, have, have to pay fines, um, stocks, lots of various issues. A lot of the imprisonment issues, they'll say that they got water and bread, and they had to just stay in prison for a month or something like that, or three days. There's even issues of rape that happened, somehow ultimately having to go to the council. Disputed engagements, interreligious marriage, that became an issue. Spouse, again, no, no abortions this year, interesting. Child mistreatments, one. Wife beatings, three. All dealt with admonition and divorce issues. So about 390 this year as well. And the last year when... Calvin, if you will, the consistory is in the height of their power, able to excommunicate. So again, we have about 90, 97, it's always about 90 to 100 issues of fornication and adultery. Five get excommunicated. So once they finally get this power, it's not having to be used that much for as big of a population as it is. Um, spouses deserting one another, you know, ultimately leading to excommunication in some cases. Again, issue of rape. School disputes, wife beatings, it seems to be an increase in that, sadly, and divorces as well. You a total of 566. So that was 114 times in 1557, with proportional decrease in cases ending in just admonition. Things getting banned to communion, so rather interesting there. Full excommunication, like I said, was pretty rare but they did exercise what they now have the power to do. In each year, roughly 60% of the consistory's entire caseload was devoted to issues of sex, marriage, and family. The severity of spiritual punishment increased in latter years as their this power grew, and roughly half of the cases in each of the three sample years were resolved in the consistory by use of spiritual sanctions. Parties who repented after being banned or forced to do public reparations were often spared criminal sanctions for their offense. So it was a rather wise thing to listen to the church, repent, do what you needed to do to fix the problem, and move on with your life before it got into a higher court. Money's now going to be involved, fines, worse things can happen. So Again, Dr. Woody explains, he concludes... While the absolute number of cases of adultery, fornication, sexual immorality, and family disputes remained relatively steady across our three sample years, the relative numbers of such cases dropped, given the growing population of the city, and the increasing numbers of consistory cases. 
This was in part because the authorities' growing rebuke of such conduct was evidently beginning to have an effect. That is one of the things about church discipline, is, is you, you do it for the sake of that own person's soul and keep the church holy, but also to cause a fear and for others to kind of wake up and snap out of it if they're even thinking about that or doing that themselves. He goes on, quote, It was also because the consistory was in more active pursuit of other cases of sex, marriage, and family, particularly wife abuse, which was subject to increasingly firm sanctions in latter years, later years, as well as divorce on grounds of desertion, as well as adultery. Let's now look at some sample cases. Uh, a large volume of the cases involved disputed engagements and marriages where one party wanted out or authorities in their life could, um, could um, cause an impediment to marriage, you know, lack of consent infancy, incest, pre-contract coercion, trickery, mental um, or sexual incapabilities were all, all reasons for this impropriety. If there's a wide disparity of age, difference in religion, or failure to get consent if they were a minor. Let's look at one case first. In 1545 to 46, Pierre and Claude, and I apologize to my French listeners, or if you know any French, I'm, I'm not uh, well-versed in French at all, so I'm not exactly sure to say all their names. Anyways, Pierre and Claude featured a very typical, simple dispute over consent. Pierre had proposed marriage to a widow named Claude in the company of Claude's mother and others, and had given her an engagement gift, even. Claude had returned the gift immediately and declined his proposal. He gets rejected. When Pierre persisted in his overture, Claude threatened to kick him in the stomach, or it could be kind of understood, it could be even lower parts. In other words, she was definitely saying no, wanted nothing to do with this guy, and she stormed out of the room. Claude's mother said to Pierre, take charge of her, she is leaving my side now. Pierre took this to mean, supposedly, that Claude's mother consented to the engagement, so he persisted in his overture to the point of requesting the consistory to order Claude to marry him. The consistory summoned Claude and inquired closely about what she had said and intended. She remained adamant about her refusal to marry Pierre and insisted that she had never once consented to the marriage. They ultimately concluded there was no basis for finding an engagement contract and thus released her. The consistory became doubly zealous in their protection of a party's right to annul an engagement whenever they suspected foul play. One other example case was in 1547, a case that the consistory learned about, again this is another Pierre, had already two years previously become engaged to a ten-year-old girl in another town. This is a different Pierre, Pierre Atrezzas. Pierre had forced the girl's mother to give her consent to the engagement. Even worse, he was now threatening to take the child away to Catholic territory. This was scandalous, said the consistory. They called upon the mother to testify. She confirmed that Pierre had not only threatened her, but in fact had beaten her villainously in order to extract her consent to her daughter's engagement. Yet the mother said she was willing to accept Pierre as her son, if he promised to live by the word of God. The mother was not just being pious and charitable, as we might think. Pierre had evidently signed a contract to pay the cost of the girl's apprenticeship 
and maintenance in exchange for her hand later in marriage. With no mention in the record of any father, it was likely that this was a single mother, a divorcee, or a widow doing the best she could to support her child. And this Pierre is just taking advantage of the situation. Pierre, Pierre intimated that he would be happy to cancel the engagement contract and by implication, his contract to pay the girl's maintenance and apprenticeship and support, all those expenses as well. The consistory would hear none of it, again, they suspected foul play. No doubt still scandalized by the evidence of Pierre's belligerence and his threat to take the girl to a Roman Catholic home, the consistory insisted on full performance of both the engagement contract and the maintenance contract. At the same time, they reserved the girl's right to rescind the engagement contract when she reached the age of consent. In this case, it was 14 for her. Sometimes it kind of fluctuated to 8 to 16 and so forth, but during this time it was 14. The consistory thereby made Pierre the victim of his own hard bargaining. Pierre had forced the mother into accepting what was, in effect, an installment contract to marry a virgin. The consistory converted this into a mandatory child support contract with no guarantee of a bride in return. Indeed, there is no record that Pierre and the girl were ever married upon her reaching the age of consent. He became a victim of his own hard bargaining. A 1552 case of leading citizen Philbert Bertelleria reports Calvin's actions in a disputed engagement case that included dowry issues. Bertelier had earlier been engaged to a woman whose brother-in-law had promised to pay an ample dowry of money and clothing. Bertelier had broken off the relationship. He then appeared before the council to explain why and requested the council's approval for him to proceed with a new marriage. Calvin represented the consistory at the council hearing. The council decided that witnesses should be heard and the new marriage be allowed only if after Bellator's prior engagement of marriage was properly dissolved. The council has no further record of the case, but 10 days later, Calvin held uh, Bertelier before the consistory. Calvin ordered him to confess his faults and to explain why he had broken off his prior relationship which one witness declared to be an actual marriage for which an ample dowry had been paid to him. So he was actually married and shouldn't just say it wasn't a marriage at all and get married to someone new. But Bertelier said nothing. Pleaded the fifth, essentially. The consistory decided to send Calvin back to the council to testify about the, illeg the illegality of Bertelier's breakup and its serious implications for restitution of the dowry to the woman and her family. While nothing survives of Calvin's testimony, a week later, the council sent a tart order to the consistory to stop interfering with Bertelier's plans for a new marriage. A chastened consistory sent another minister to apologize to the council. Calvin himself apparently wouldn't go, and there's no way Calvin could have been happy about that. That was, it very much smells like this man is powerful, he's in government, he's got connections, money, he's going to get his way. <sighs> yeah, again, nothing new under the sun. Calvin was big on consent, so again, to kind of bounce back between some consistory cases and, you know, the positive teaching that these men were talking about. He was very big on consent and marriage, 
And here's what he says about Malachi 2.14, which reads, quote, Yet ye say wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant? Calvin says, quote, But in order to press the matter more on the priest, he calls their attention to the fact that God is the founder of marriage. Testified has Jehovah, he says, between thee and thy wife. Marriage takes place between a man and a woman. God presides and requires a mutual pledge from both. Hence Solomon in Proverbs 2.17 calls marriage the covenant of God, for it is superior to all human contracts. So also Malachi declares that God is, as it were, the stipulator, who by his authority joins the man to the woman and sanctions the alliance. God then has testified between thee and thy wife, as though he has said, Thou hast violated not only all human laws, but also the compact which God himself has consecrated, and which ought justly to be deemed more sacred than all other compacts. As then God has testified between thee and thy wife, and thou now deceivest her, how darest thou to come to the altar? And how canst thou think that God will be pleased with thy sacrifice or regard thy oblations? Again, you would probably definitely not be pleased is the unspoken uh, command there, words there. So what he goes on and says that as these cases illustrate, the Genevan authorities regarded an engagement as a serious contract, much like a marriage contract. Parties were expected to announce their pending nuptials by posting bans in the city, basically announcements in the church, um, and, and the church, and married within six weeks. Premarital sex with one's fiancé or fiancée was an act of fornication, punishable by short imprisonment on both sides and by public confession if the woman winds up becoming pregnant. Sex with a third party in breach of one's engagement was an act of adultery that could lead to severe spiritual and criminal sanctions and annulment of the engagement. Marriage to a third party after engagement was seen as polygamy, which was a prima facie capital crime in the city. So let's look at some cases here. In 1547, the case of Frantrois and his fiancée for delaying their wedding for two months, uh, which was an infraction of the worst by their intermittent cohabitation. So they delayed their wedding, but they're cohabiting. The couple was publicly admonished for their sin, quote, so that others may be warned not to behave so, end quote. Thereafter, the consistory declared, we will marry them, because they just kept delaying it over and over and over. The consistory sometimes relaxed this six-week engagement rule if a legitimate condition caused the delay. For example, in that second case there, in 1546, the case of the widow Simone and her fiancé, um, with delaying their wedding, they had delayed it for months and months and months, even while they slept together when he was in town. The widow confessed immediately to the fornication, but justified their protracting engagement on grounds that her fiancé was trying to get his property in order so that they could both move to Geneva and settle down there properly. The consistory accepted this testimony without further investigation. They ordered her and her fiancé to detest from further fornication, obviously, but neither punished the couple for their sin nor ordered them to get married quickly. The consistory was normally not nearly so tolerant 
of premarital fornication. So perhaps it was that she came to them quickly and they took pity on her because she was a widow and she appeared to be very contrite and candid in her testimony, not trying to hide anything, just being honest, and that helped her in that case. Now for a tangled case that went back and forth from 1555 to 1556, this one is quite interesting. Uh, we have Dennis, the father, Martha, the daughter, Ahmed, who was the first proposed, and Andre, the second to propose. So let's go through the story here. A father named Dennis testified that he had earlier proposed the marriage of his daughter, Martha, to a young man named um, Ahmed, who was courting her. Ahmed had refused the marriage. Shortly thereafter, Dennis had approved Martha's marriage to a different man, a second man, Andre. After her wedding night, Martha was found to already be pregnant. She gave birth to a healthy son, one of those magical babies that's born in six months after the wedding day. Her former lover, Ahmed, not her husband, Andre, turned out to be the father. No surprise there. I guess if you've grown up in the Jerry Springer uh, generation like I have. Ahmed had revealed as much in several secret love letters that he had sent to Martha, which her husband, Andre, had discovered after learning of Martha's pregnancy on their wedding night. Oh, what a horrible wedding present. When the council confronted him with these letters, Ahmed pled guilty to charges of fornication, and so the council imprisoned and fined him. These same love letters suggested to the council that Ahmed and Martha might well have been engaged to be married as well. Ahmed denied any such engagement and testified that he had already been engaged to another woman in Antwerp and was in fact trying to annul that engagement. This testimony only compounded Ahmed's problem. For now, the council suspected both parties of polygamy, Martha for marrying Andre after her engagement to Ahmed, and Ahmed for engaging Martha after his engagement to another woman in Antwerp. The council sent the whole case to the consistory for closer fact-finding. Summoned before the consistory, Martha testified that Ahmed had indeed proposed to marry her. That was why she had yielded to his sexual advances and had kept his secret love letters despite the risk of being found out. We actually find out a lot about this in a lot of these consistory cases. A lot of the women will say, you know, I only said yes to having sex with this man because they said, I'm going to marry you anyways, let's just do it. And obviously they wind up regretting that, but that is very common, very, very sad. Um, anyway, she further testified that when Ahmed spurned her she wanted to die when she found out she was pregnant she shot she sought medical advice on how to abort a child when her efforts of abortion failed she quickly married andre apparently under some pressure from her father so the father is even involved in this and not wanting her his daughter i'm sure to have a bad reputation uh, even though it's kind of rightly deserved in this case in his defense before the consistory Ahmed again insisted that he had made no such engagement promise to Martha, for he was already engaged to another woman in Antwerp. He was trying to have the engagement annulled. Oh, sorry, I heard you read that part. Um, when summoned to testify, Dennis, the father, at first denied Ahmed's whole story as a self-serving cover-up and angrily denounced Ahmed before the consistory. The consistory had little reason to trust Dennis's credibility, however. They had just heard Martha's testimony that Dennis had pressured her into marrying Andre quickly. 
and likely suspected that he was trying to cover up her fornication and find support for her illegitimate son. Moreover, the consistory discovered that Dennis had also just carried his new baby grandson to the baptismal and in further attempts or carry his new baby to get baptized and in further attempt to cover up the illegitimacy had him registered in the baptismal registry as the son of Andre, Martha's new husband, rather than the son of the real father who was a med. Andre, it turned out, had not consented to any of this, and indeed now wanted out of this marriage of Martha altogether. I mean, he just realized he was deeply involved in a lot of family drama. Poor guys probably, um, well, he was ignorant and innocent and just caught up in all of this mess. Anyways, the case bounced back and forth between the consistory and the council for the next half year. The council investigated Ahmed and Martha under oath several times and imprisoned Ahmed for a time because of his um, perjury and reluctance to and how he was participating. It became quite clear to the authorities that Martha had married Andre while believing that she was already engaged to Ahmed. The consistory sent Calvin himself to the council to impress on them the gravity of her offense. The council ultimately fined her heavily, dissolved her marriage with Andre, and barred her from marriage to anyone else, consigning her to effective widowhood. The consistory banned her from communion, admitting her only a half year later when she did another full confession. Calvin later sought the council's permission to allow her to remarry after a further time of repentance. It also became quite clear to the authorities that Ahmed did not believe himself engaged to Martha because of his engagement to the Antwerp woman. This was apparently ample mitigation in their minds. The council fined him, too, but barred him from marriage for only a year to consider his conscience. They also determined that his engagement to the woman in Antwerp was no longer binding. The consistory banned him from communion as well and readmitted him several months later when he did full confession of his sin. Most cases of engagement to one party followed by marriage to another, were not nearly so complicated. What this case illustrates is how serious the consistory and the council took this offense. Especially notable was their emphasis on the intent to commit polygamy, rather than proof of polygamy. It was because Martha believed she was already engaged to Ahmed when she married Andre that she was punished so severely for this attempt at polygamy. But the legality of both her contracts were suspect. Her engagement contract to Ahmed was never proved to exist, even if she intended or believed it existed. Her marriage contract to Andre was vulnerable to attack on two fronts. Martha was not fully composmentous when she entered that marriage contract, and her father had evidently coerced her into his marriage, into this marriage as part of a cover-up. Such a marriage might well have been annulled if attacked directly on grounds of lack of consent by Martha. Moreover, Martha's punish, punishment of, for, of forced permanent widowhood was a rather harsh sentence. She was now forced to be a single mother of an illegitimate child. The child's father, Ahmed, was ready and willing to marry her and support the child, and after a year of forced bachelorhood would be able to do so. Perhaps it was this reality that prompted Calvin to go back to the council to have Martha sentenced to forced widowhood reduced. Oof. So let's look at what Calvin says about polygamy, because I, 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 I think we have an understanding of it that is a lot more tamer. We don't think about it as much. We don't think about it as, 
as, as wicked as it truly is. But here's what Calvin says on it. As part of his commentary on the commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, Exodus 20.14. He says, quote, Although one kind of impunity is alone referred to, it is sufficiently plain from the principle laid down that believers are generally exhorted to chastity. For, if the law be a perfect rule of holy living, it would be more than absurd to give a license for fornication, adultery alone being accepted. Furthermore, it is incontrivable that God will by no means approve or excuse before his tribunal what the common sense of mankind declares to be obscene. For although lewdness has everywhere been rampant in every age, still the opinion could never be utterly extinguished that fornication is a scandal and a sin. Unquestionably, what Paul teaches has been prevalently received from the beginning, that a good life consists of three parts, soberness, righteousness, and godliness, as he describes in Titus 2.12. And the soberness which he commands differs not from chastity. Besides, when Christ or the apostles are treating of a perfect life, they always refer believers to the law. For, as it has been said of old by Moses, this is the way, walk ye in it. Christ confirms this. If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Matthew 19, 17. And Paul corroborates it. He that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Romans 13, 8. Whilst, whilst they constantly pronounce a curse against all fornicators, and this comes from, uh, well, that's just his summary of, of the law, like polygamy is including that. So let, now let's look at one of his quotes explicitly dealing with polygamy. This comes from Genesis 4.19, And Lamech took unto him two wives. On this, Calvin says, quote, We have here the origin of polygamy in a perverse and degenerate race, and the first author of it, a cruel man destitute of all humanity. Whether he had been impelled by a moderate desire of augmenting his own family, as proud and ambitious men are wont to do, or by mere lust, it is of little consequence to determine, because in either way he violated the sacred law of marriage, which had been delivered by God. For God had determined that they, too, should be one flesh, and that is the perpetual order of nature. Lamech, with brutal contempt of God, corrupts nature's laws. The Lord, therefore, willed that the corruption of lawful marriage should proceed from the house of Cain and from the person of Lamech, in order that polygamists might be ashamed of the example. And going back to Malachi 2, but now looking at verse 3, Calvin says this, But if a comparison be made, Malachi says, that it is a lighter crime to dismiss a wife, and to marry many wives. We hence learn how abominable polygamy is in the sight of God. I do not consider polygamy to be what the foolish papists have made it, who call not those polygamists who have many wives at the same time, but those who marry another when the former one is dead. This is gross ignorance. Polygamy, properly so-called, is when a person takes many wives as it was commonly done in the East. And those nations, we know, have always been 
libidinous and never observe the marriage vow. As then their lavishness was so great that they were like brute beasts, everyone married several wives. And this abuse continues at this day among the Turks and the Persians and other nations. Here, however, where God compares polygamy with divorce, he says that polygamy is the worst and more detestable crime. For the husband impurely connects himself with another woman, and then not only deals unfaithfully with his wife to whom he is bound, but also forcibly detains her. Thus his crime is doubled. For if he replies and says that he keeps the wife to whom he is bound, he is yet an adulterer as to the second wife. Thus he blends, as he says, holy with profane things. And then to adultery and lavishness he adds cruelty, for he holds under his authority a miserable woman who would prefer death to such a condition. For we know what power jealousy has over women, and when any one introduces a harlot, how can a lawful wife bear such an indignity without being miserably tormented? Lastly, abortion was mentioned as something considered earlier, so let's take a quick look while we're in Calvin's dealing with the law or what he says about abortion and commenting on Exodus 21. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follows, he shall be, sh he shall, he shall be surely punished accordingly, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follows, then thou shalt give life for life. Calvin says on this, quote, The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of his mother, is already a human being. And it is a monstrous crime to rob it of life, which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in the field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to life. Now, again, moving on to some more cases. There are some cases of seduction and rape, a large number of cases that started as disputed contracts or non-marital <clears throat> pregnancy cases involved seduction, fraudulent promises to marriage, and sometimes just outright rape. Typically, it was a man promising to marry a woman if she consents to lay with him. She obliges. He then is gone the next morning, denying any interest of marriage. She is now stigmatized, sometimes pregnant too, and gets prosecuted for fornication. Her defense is that she was seduced on the false or fleeting promise of marriage. In these cases, the consistory and council worked hard to determine the facts, administered stiff punishment against abusers, but try to ensure that the pregnant woman or a newborn child born of these involuntary unions was supported. Let's look first at a case <clears throat> in 1547. For example, the consistory summoned an unmarried maid named Omnia. <clears throat> Excuse me. Actually, I think that's Emma Hordier. Emma to explain her pregnancy. She testified that her master's brother, Rowland, had promised to marry her, and they had then had sexual intercourse. 
consistory admonished Emma for her fornication and sent her to the council for punishment. But their real interest was to find Rollin to compel him to marry her if it proved true that they were engaged. Rollin was not to be found, though. He had evidently moved to the Burn region. The consistory sent the case to the council in order that Rollin be properly punished for his fornication and compelled to marry Emma if he returned. In the meantime, the council ordered Emma's master, who, master, who was the brother of Rollin, to take care of the new mother and the child. Moving on to another case where this abduction was part of a more serious crime, however, the authorities seemed to be bent on punishing the criminals. In 1557 case, of uh, Jaquema Quay and Claude Janad in a good case is a good case to, to point this out. I'm just going to call him Jock. Jock and Claude. Claude had promised, well, in this case, Claude is, is the man, uh, I don't say Jaquema? Jaquema. Jaquema. Uh, Claude had promised to marry Jaquema and had given her an engagement gift. The couple had then fornicated rather freely thereafter. Jaquima was now six months pregnant. The consistory banned the couple from communion and sent them to the council, who ordered them imprisoned for their fornication. Claude apparently continued to visit the heavily pregnant Jaquima and also left support money for her at the home where she was staying. On further investigation, the consistory discovered that at least two other pregnant women were staying at the same home. Hmm. Their boyfriends, too, continued to come by and leave support money for them. The consistory must have now suspected that the house was, in fact, a brothel, and that the money Claude was, uh, was tendering was not for Jaquima's support, but for sexual services rendered. The consistory sent the case immediately to the council, who came down hard. They ordered Jaquima and the operators and other occupants to be of the home to be permanently banished on pain of whipping if they ever returned. Claude was temporarily banished from the city as well, though he was later permitted to return, suggesting that he had no obligation to marry Jaquima. Sometimes single pregnant women were victims of rape, as was evident in a 1552 case of a young maid named Michi Moray. Michi's master, Hudry, had raped her and she was now pregnant. He gave her some fine clothing and a good deal of money, whether for her support or to silence her, not really clear. He also promised to find her a husband since he himself was already married. Rajat sought to arrange her marriage to an eligible man, but that match evidently did not transpire in the end. In an attempt to cover up the affair, Rajat's wife urged Michi to abort the child or to bring it to her um, after birth to be killed. A neighbor who knew of the affair urged Michi to carry the child to term and seek charitable support for its upbringing. When this whole scandalous affair came to their attention, the consistory moved swiftly to punish the perpetrators. They questioned Rojad's wife closely, though she denied any wrongdoing. She was banned from communion and sent to the council who imprisoned her. Both Michi and the neighbor woman were temporarily banned from communion as well evidently for failing to notify the authorities of the scandal, kind of just allowing it to go on. Mitchie was briefly imprisoned as well, for reasons not explained in the records that we have. But the authorities saved their harshest punishment for Rojad, particularly when they learned he had earlier done the same thing to another maid. 
He, had he was imprisoned for 12 days, heavily fined, in order to pay for the cost of Mitchie's childbirth and convalescence. A further order to pay for the child's maintenance as well as continued his support for Mitchie thereon after. Calvin would compare those with an appetite to rape as a brute beast. And whenever you, you hear these old school guys talk about a brute beast, I mean, they're saying they're, they're basically saying they're less than human. Like, it is atrocious to do this. Um, <clears throat> here is a short excerpt from his sermon on David's son, Amnon, uh, forcibly taking his sister Tamar. For example, when describing Amnon indulging in his lust, he says, quote, This passion was like a vicious animal, which has to be tied up in chains and kept behind bars. Our lusts and passions are terrible beasts and very difficult to keep under control. His imagery clearly shows a solution. Put away or kill lust. Don't nurture this beast at all. He goes on, quote, Not only were his eyes blinded by that wicked passion which had seized him, but the devil was possessing him in such a way that he was totally out of his senses. The devil had such control of him that he did not know any more about kinship than a dumb animal. And before any outward actions take place, the battle takes place in the heart, and that's what Calvin is getting at. From his Genesis commentary, Calvin argues that lust is a very slippery slope. He says, quote, uh, on Genesis 34:4, commenting, And Shechem spake unto his father, Hamar, saying, Get me this damsel to wife, he comments. In this place, it is more clearly expressed that Shechem desired to have Nina for his wife, for his lust was not so unbridled that when he had defiled, he despised her. Besides, a laudable modesty is shown, since he pays deference to the will of his father, for he does not attempt to form a contract of marriage of his own mind, but leaves this to his father's authority. For though he had basely fallen through the precipice, the, the precipitate ardor of lust, yet now returning to himself, he follows the guidance of nature. So much the more ought young men to take heed to themselves, lest in the slippery period of their age the lust of the flesh should impel them to many crimes. For at this day greater license everywhere prevails, so that no moderation restrains youth from shameful conduct. If he's saying that about back then, think about our times now. But you look back through our history and kind of go, yeah, nothing new under the sun. Uh, so I don't have any cases that show on this. I did want to read through the actual marriage ordinance on how they would deal with abuse. So this comes again from the marriage ordinance of 1546, paragraph 35. They say this, quote, If a husband does not live in peace with his wife, but they have conflicts and quarrels with each other, let them be summoned to the consistory to be admonished to live in good concord and unity and each be remonstrated with with for his faults according to the needs of the case. So they would take these on a one-on-one -on -one basis. If it is known that a husband mistreats his wife, beating and tormenting her, or that he threatens to do her an injury and is known to be a man of uncontrolled anger, let him be sent before the council to be expressly forbidden to beat her, under pain of certain punishment. Calvin was against tyranny of any form. And commenting on uh, his um, Colossians commentary, Colossians 3, 18 and 19, on the verse, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, 
as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wife and be not bitter against them. He says this, quote, He commands wives to be subject. He requires love on the part of the husbands and that they be not bitter because there is a danger lest they should abuse their authority in the way of tyranny. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth himself, he that loveth, loveth, loveth his wife, loveth himself. Ephesians 5.28. Now moving on to this commentary, he says, quote, He that loveth his wife, an argument is now drawn from nature itself to prove that men ought to love their wives. Every man, by his very nature, loves himself. But no man can love himself without loving his wife. Therefore, a man, do, a man who does not love his wife is a monster. This minor proposition is proved in this manner. Marriage was appointed by God on the condition that the two should be one flesh. And that this unity may be the more sacred, he again recommends it to our notice by the consideration of Christ and his church. Such is the amount of his argument, which to a certain extent applies universally to human society. To show what a man owes to himself, Isaiah says, quote, Hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Isaiah 58.7 And regarding their reasons that a marriage may be dissolved by, the legitimate, by a legitimate divorce, which is something very new to process, we had no grounds of divorce in uh, Catholicism. Well, I won't get into the details of that. But yeah, uh, there is a lot on adultery, obviously, but also abandonment, which is taken as breaking the marriage vows. The ordinance says this, quote, chapter, uh, paragraph 46. If a man makes a habit of thus abandoning his wife to wander about the country, the second time, let him be punished by imprisonment on bread and water, and let him be commanded with strong threats not to do so anymore. The third time, let greater rigor be employed against him, and if there is no improvement, let one provide that the wife is no longer bound to such a man, who gives her neither faith nor companionship. In another paper, Dr. Woody Jr. talks about how they dealt with other cases. All of these cases had the foundation of what the good and the goals of marriage were to Protestants, as we understand according to the Bible. He says the following, quote, Marriage serves three main goods or goals, Calvin argued. It fosters the mutual love and support of husband and wife. It enables the licit procreation and nurture of children and it protects both husband and wife from sexual sin and temptation. Calvin counseled fellow Reformed Christians strongly against courting or marrying unbelievers. Such unions were ill-advised, he insisted, for they jeopardized all three goods and goals of marriages. The unbeliever could not know the true meaning of love reflected in Christ, would not know how to raise children in the love of God, and might not resist the temptation to lust which marriage was supposed to remedy. Calvin did not regard difference in religion as an absolute bar to marriage, let alone a ground for divorce. Reformed Protestants could marry Lutherans, Anabaptists, and other Protestants, as Calvin himself did in marrying Idolette de Burr and Anabaptists. Again, I kind of don't know if that's a fair assessment. At one point they were Anabaptists, don't know if they were at that point, but... This guy's smarter than me, so let's we'll keep reading. He says he continues. Reformed Christians should not, however, marry Catholics, Orthodox Jews, Muslims, or unbelievers. 
Those who sought to enter such mixed marriages should be strongly dissuaded, though they could not be prevented from going forward. Parties who were already in mixed marriages or whose spouses lapsed from the Reformed faith after the wedding should remain together unless the unbelieving spouse became notoriously abusive. Absent mortal peril to body or soul, believers should view such marital conditions as an opportunity for Christian evangelism, since the piety of the believer sanctifies the marriage more than the impiety of the non-believer pollutes it. But if a non-believing spouse deserts the other, the abandoned spouse has no obligation to pursue or encourage that spouse to return. If a couple proved barren, Calvin urged them to accept this as an opportunity to love otherwise. We are fruitful or barren as God imparts his power, he wrote. Calvin would hear nothing of concubinage or surrogate motherhood as a viable alternative to sterility, despite the example of Abraham and other Old Testament figures. In taking Hagar as his concubine, quote, Abraham took a liberty, which God had not countenanced, Calvin believed, and his reward was the perpetual strife between Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael, and their many descendants. This, for Calvin, was proof enough that concubinage was no viable option for the modern day. Calvin would also hear nothing of divorce on grounds of sterility or barrenness. Procreation was only one created purpose of marriage, he counseled. Where it could not be achieved, a couple had to double their efforts to achieve the other purposes of mutual love and mutual protection from lust. Treating each other with chaste tenderness, even where God would not bless them with children, will Calvin encourage now, while we got a sampling of the plethora of marriage issues that Calvin and the consistory and the councils had to deal with, there was one group that takes the cake and will end on their note. John Calvin and the Libertines. And this comes from uh, Piper's The Divine Majesty of the Word, John Calvin, the man, and his preaching. <clears throat> he sets up the scene rather nicely. One of the most persistent thorns in Calvin's side were the Libertines in Geneva. But here, too, his perseverance was triumphant in a remarkable way. Even after Calvin had been preaching as pastor of St. Peter's Church for over 15 years, the immorality was a plague even in the church. The Libertines boasted in their license. For them, the communion of the saints meant the common possession of goods, houses, bodies, and wives. So they practiced adultery and indulged in sexual promiscuity in the name of Christian freedom. And at the same time, they claimed the right to sit at the Lord's table. Now we've seen how Calvin dealt with the Lord's table before, and just them dealing with political motives. Let's see how he deals with these libertines. The crisis of the communion came to a head in 1553. A well-to-do libertine named Berthelier was forbidden to the, by the consistory of the church to eat the Lord's Supper, but appealed the decision to the council of the city which overturned the ruling. Again, at this point, the council is still overriding the consistory at times. <sighs> rough, rough stuff for the ministers. <clears throat> this created a crisis for Calvin who would not think of yielding to the state the right of excommunication, 
nor by admitting a libertine to the Lord's table. The issue, as always, was <clears throat> the glory of Christ. He wrote to a, this is a close personal friend of him, Verrett. I took an oath that I had resolved rather to meet death than profane so shamefully the holy supper of the Lord. My ministry is abandoned if I suffer the authority of the consistory to be trampled upon and extend the supper of Christ to open scoffers. I should rather die a hundred times than subject Christ to such foul mockery. I remember, yeah, the, oof. So this is, uh, yeah, remember that Calvin had been kicked out of the city before for not abiding by the consistory's rules on communion. The Lord's Day of Testing arrived. The Libertines were present to eat the Lord's Supper. It was a critical moment for the Reformed faith in Geneva. The sermon had been preached, the prayers had been offered, and Calvin descended from the pulpit to take his place beside the element beside the el excuse me, and Calvin descended from the pulpit to take his place beside the elements at the communion table. The bread and wine were duly consecrated by him, and he was now ready to, to distribute them to the communicants. Then on a sudden, a rush was begun by the troublers in Israel in the direction of the communion table. Calvin flung his arms around the sacramental vessels as if to protect them from sacrilege, while his voice rang through the building. He said, These hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. After this, uh, Beza, uh, Calvin's first biographer, said that, quote, the sacred ordinance was celebrated with a profound silence and under solemn awe in all presence, as if the deity himself had been visibly present among them. That, end quote. That comes from Calvin's letters in, in one sense, yes, visible uh, representation of the Lord was present with them and the special presence of Christ uh, with his congregated church. Calvin's ministry proved to have an incredible steadfastness. I think this is the main thing that, kept, that makes this so memorable, Calvin's Geneva. In fact, this was Calvin's own call to preachers to have an invincible consistency and to reckon that we shall have enmity and displeasure when we do our duty. Yet nevertheless, let us go through it without bending. Therefore, subject yourselves ultimately to him who has created and fashioned us, is what Calvin would encourage them on. So we may be like believers who seek to live for God's glory in all aspects of life. I think this is the, the example we have from Calvin, no matter what hardships it may bring. These are all light and momentary afflictions in comparison to God's eternal. We'll continue on next time, part nine, finishing up our series, 1577 and beyond, looking at some um, stories of love, kind of getting back to the love letters. We'll look at maybe one every every century or so as we end our series on the next one, like I said, of marriage, divorce, and remarriage throughout church history, early Christianity through the Reformation.